0: Well, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. So, Romans 1, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made of corruptible man, and birds, and four footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Well, last time we got up through verse 20, and we, just a little bit of a review, um, we got through uh, verses 16 and 17, which in Romans serves as Paul's theme statement, his, uh, what he ex- hopes to express throughout the rest of the letter, as he hopes to sort of expand and expound on the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he says it has the power of salvation, which is why he is not ashamed. The gospel message has power as it is working in and through the church, through people who spread the good news. Even though to us we may sometimes feel ashamed of the gospel because it's just words, it's just a message, the fact of the matter is that message contains power. It contains an inherent power to change uh, the life of a sinner. It takes a dead sinner and makes him alive in Christ. It takes one who is who is dead in their sins and trespasses and makes them into believers. It took the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, and turned him into the church's greatest advocate. And then in verse 17, he talks about how the gospel is a revelation. It is a revelation of the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this idea of revelation, then, is going to carry us through the rest of chapter 1 and 2 and all the way into chapter 3, this idea of the righteousness of God being revealed through the gospel. And then as we got into verses 18, 19, and 20, we see how the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind's unrighteousness and their ungodliness because of what they do. They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth because what may be known of God is manifest. So this wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against our ungodliness, which we talked about. That's sort of sin on the vertical level. It's, it's rejecting God. It's rejecting the things of God and our unrighteousness. That's sin on the horizontal level against one another. <clears throat> and, and it's being revealed because they suppress the truth. The truth about what? Well, the truth about what can be known of God. <clears throat> and why is this suppression seen as unrighteousness? Because the knowledge of God is manifest. It is plain. It is evident. It is visible. It is obvious. And why is this knowledge plain? Because God has made it plain. He has made it plain to them, to to people, in the things that have been made. That's what he says here. So the whole creation screams there is a God. It is so evident that it says, that Paul says it leaves man without excuse. There will be no one who's going to go up before judgment and say, "Sorry, God, I did not see enough evidence of you." Because God is going to say, "It was plain. It was plain to you. It was clear to you. I demonstrated it to you. You see it in the creation. You see it in the human being. You see it all around you. The fingerprints of God are everywhere." So there is no defense for rejecting the existence of God is inexcusable. Well, with that said, we look now at verses 21 here through 23 where we get this shocking statement in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now here's here's why there is no such thing as an atheist, because everyone knows God. We all know there's a God deep down in our hearts. Again, as the psalmist says in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. So the idea that there is no God, the belief or the rejection of the idea that a God exists is described by the Bible as foolishness, as foolishness. So atheism or the stubborn belief that there is no God is considered foolish. It's foolish because the atheist denies what he or she knows to be true in his or her own heart. Everyone knows God exists. And they know God exists because God has plainly revealed himself to all men, to all people. That is the point of general revelation. We talked a little bit about general revelation. It is revelation that is made general. It is made to all mankind. You see it, again, in the creation. You see it in the the marvels of the universe. You see it in the marvels of the microverse. It, It doesn't matter how small you go or how far you go out. You see the fingerprints of God. Revealed. So in verse 21, we see how the righteousness and and the ungodly suppressed the truth. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor him nor give thanks to him. There's a story told of an evolutionist who made the following comment. He said, I refuse to believe in God. So what other alternative do I have but evolution? In other words, it wasn't that the evidence of evolution was so overwhelming that he had to reject belief in God. He had already made up his mind that God didn't exist. So the only alternative that he had left to him was to believe in um, evolution from from, little things all the way up to big things. And of course, famous biologist and anti-theist, I don't even call him an atheist, he is an anti-theist, Richard Dawkins said, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. These are the reactions of people who in their heart of hearts know God exists, but refuse to honor him as God. They refuse to give God thanks. And this idea of refusing to honor God or give him thanks is the essence of the sinful heart. God is the creator and we are the creature, and we owe our entire existence to God. He sustains us, He he sustains our existence by His will. That's what the Bible says. We are sustained by the power of His will. We live and move and have our being in God. Yet the attitude that refuses to honor God or give him thanks is like a slap in the face to the creator. It is like a child going up to their parent and say and just kind of smacking them in the face. It is that that's the kind of reaction that 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 is is evident when an unbeliever refuses to acknowledge God in their hearts. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from our Heavenly Father. Yet the unrighteous and the ungodly refuse to give God thanks for the blessings in their lives. So Paul continues in verse 21. He says, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the idea here is that when one turns his or her back on God, when one turns his or her back on what is holy, righteous, and true, This refusal to give uh, glory and thanks to God, the purpose for which we were created, we were created to worship God, we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, this leads to futile thinking and darkened hearts. When you turn your back on God, when you reject him, when you fail to acknowledge him, this leads to futile thinking and darkened hearts. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, he says this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's the same thought here that, that Paul gets across in Romans as he does here in Ephesians. Paul warns the people in Ephesians that. Uh, not to walk as the Gentiles do. Not to walk is an unbeliever. Why? Because the unbeliever walks or lives. The idea of walk is just a metaphor for living your life. That person lives in the futility of their minds and with a darkened understanding. This word here became futile is to be given to worthless or futile speculation. This is essentially the kind of thinking you get when you dislodge yourself from that which is true. When you're no longer anchored to the truth, then you're left adrift in a sea of speculation and worthless reasoning. And similarly here with the word "were darkened," they or became inwardly darkened. They were their minds were darkened. This this idea, this metaphor of light and dark, you see this all throughout Scripture. Light and dark are metaphors for knowledge and ignorance or good and evil often that's that's used here and and so this idea of a darkened heart is one whose heart is given over to evil is given over to ignorance because again they have refused the truth they they have dislodged themselves they have unanchored themselves from the truth so now they're left adrift they're left adrift and with darkened hearts and futile thinking Now, just a little technical side note here. These verbs that Paul uses became futile, were darkened. They're in what is called the passive voice. So if you remember your elementary school grammar, which for me, I know is a long way away. And for some of you, it's probably a little longer (laughs) ways away. But if you remember your high school grammar, you had active voice and passive voice. So active voice would be Billy hit the ball. Billy is the subject. He is the one performing the action. He hits the ball. Passive voice would say, Billy was hit by the ball, okay? So Billy is the the subject of the sentence, is the recipient of the action of the verb. So he was hit by the ball. He was passive in that sense. And these verbs here, became futile, were darkened, are in the passive voice. So here, those who refuse to glorify and give thanks to God, they have become futile. It's not that they actively went out and became futile. it It is a judgment of God as they remove themselves from the truth they are becoming futile. They are becoming darkened in their hearts. Remember, all the way back up in verse 18, we said that the wrath of God is being revealed, this idea of revelation against all of this. And this is how it's done. When you when you, when you remove yourself from the truth, when you refuse to acknowledge God and give him thanks and glorify his name, then this judgment comes upon you. The wrath of God is being revealed upon you as your thinking becomes futile and as your heart becomes darkened. So what's the result? What's the result? Paul continues in verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So if you were here last week, uh, when we started this section, we said that Romans 1, 18 through 22 shows us devolution, not evolution. It shows us devolution. It shows a downward spiral as as the, the wrath of God is continually being revealed against you because you refuse to acknowledge God in your hearts. Mankind goes in a downward spiral, and this is what we see here. The futile mind, the darkened heart, reveals itself in that people... Claim to be wise. They say they're wise, yet they show themselves to be fools. They reject belief in God, but instead exchange the glory of God for the glory of man and the glory of animals. Now, we see this all the time today, right? We see this even today. You see environmentalists, many of whom are, are atheists, many of whom are anti-God, yet they, you can tell in the way that they, they're activists, they, they worship nature, they worship the creature, they worship the creation. You see secularists who reject God and still talk about the inherent goodness of mankind despite all the evidence to the contrary. You got all kinds of people claiming to be wise while they spot out all kinds of anti-God nonsense. Here in Romans 1.23, Paul, who wrote this about 2,000 years ago, still sounds like it was written last week. Paul is eerily current when he talks about these things. Now we look on to verses 24 and 25. So here we're going to see that downward spiral of mankind who rejects the clear knowledge of God and refuses to glorify him and give him thanks. So here... We see these words here in verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up or God gave them over. God gave them up. You're going to see this three times in this passage here in verse 24. You'll see it again in verse 26. You'll see it again in verse 28. It is the same exact uh, three words in Greek. God gave them up. God handed them over. Okay. This giving up of people. Is a form of judgment. It is a revelation, again, verse 18, it is a revelation of his wrath. Now, just a little background here. Theologians refer to something that is called common grace. If, has anybody here heard of common grace? What that kind of means? It's used to describe God's beneficent care of all mankind. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 5:45 when he says, that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. God is, shows common grace. He shows a goodness, a kindness to all people, regardless of race, religion, creed, or culture. doesn't matter if they're, if they're the people of Israel or not. He sends his rains on everyone. He is gracious that way. It's not a saving grace, but it is a common grace, common to all mankind. This idea of common grace was sealed in the covenant that God made with Noah after the the, the destruction of the flood, which again was also a revelation of God's judgment on mankind. After that flood in Genesis 8, 21 and 22, God tells Noah, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease this is God making a promise to mankind even though he says despite the fact that they are wicked from their youth I'm going to allow the natural course of things to to go on I'm going to allow summer and winter seed time and harvest I'm going to be gracious in this sense doesn't mean that he's not going to judge their sin it's just that he is going to be gracious in this sense here. So in common grace, God gives general blessings to all mankind and restrains the full effects of sin from the fall. That's the other thing he does. He does because of common grace. It is because of common grace that fallen mankind isn't as evil or as wicked as they could be. God in his common grace restrains the fullness of their wickedness by, by restraining them. Now, Back to Romans. So when God says he's going to give them up, what he's doing now, he's removing his restraining hand from people. And he's going to let them experience the full consequences of their sin. As an illustration, think about how you parent, how you train your child to ride a bike. Okay, if your child has never ridden a bike before, you, you go behind them on the bike and you hold it, right? You've got your hand on it so they don't fall one way or the other. And as the kid's going and you're holding it, the kid's doing fine. Now, if the kid has never ridden a bike before and you let go, what's going to happen to the kid? He may go for a while and then he's going to crash and burn pretty badly off on the side of the sidewalk, right? That's what, that's the idea here is what's going on. Okay. God is letting go. He's taking his hand off the bike and he's going to let mankind run its course. He's going to, this is again, part of the revelation of his wrath is he's going to remove his hand and he's going to let, okay, you want to sin? Okay. Then reap the full consequences of your sin. Can consider the way we parent our children. Our natural tendency is to shield our children from the consequences of their actions, Right. No one wants to see their child suffer. No one wants to see their child uh, in pain. But then there comes a point in their lives when the child gets older, right? And it then becomes more and more harmful to shield them from the consequences of their actions. So maybe then you don't bail them out. Maybe then you don't provide cover for them. And then maybe then you don't try to get them off the hook. Every now and then you have to let a child experience the consequences of what happens in their lives. And that's what God's doing here in verses 24 through 32. Except what God is doing is not for training or correction. What God is doing here is for punishment. It is an expression of his wrath. It is a judicial punishment. His wrath is being revealed. Humanity doesn't want to glorify God or give him thanks, and God will give them over. He will hand them over. He will deliver them up. He, he, will, he will give them up. Therefore, again, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So these people are given up to the lusts of their hearts. They're given up to impurity and they're given up to dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves. Without getting into the gory details, this is a downward spiral of idolatry. What's happening here is they're giving up God and, and, and they're worshiping other things. Instead of honoring God, they are following the lusts of their hearts. Instead of giving thanks to God, they give themselves over to uncleanness. That's what impurity means, uncleanness. And instead of worshiping their creator, they dishonor their own bodies among themselves. Now, here's the fundamental truth of, of mankind. We were made to worship. We were made to worship. Human beings were originally made to worship God. But since after the fall, we reject God, something must fill that void. Nature abhors a vacuum, it is said. So if we don't worship God, what's going to happen? We're going to worship something. We're going to fill that void with something else if it's not God. That's what you see in verse 25. Sinful man exchanges the truth about God for the lie. We give up the truth about our creator, God, for the lie of serving and worshiping the creation and created things. So the first phase of being given over by God is to fall into rank idolatry. Now, an implication to be drawn from this verse is that there is true religion, right? Christianity is the true religion, and false religion is essentially everything else. Now, that may be harsh to say. Says you know, Someone may come and say, well, that's, that's kind of exclusionary. That's kind of you know arrogant for you to say that you're, you're the true religion. But the truth of the matter is, as the Bible says, there is only one way to God, right? John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. That seems pretty exclusionary, right? Jesus, who's supposed to be meek and mild and kind and loving to all people, says there's only one way to get to the Father, and that is through me. It's a lie to say that all roads lead to heaven, that all the various religions are not alternate pathways to God. Now we move on to verses 26 and 27, and the story is, but wait, it gets even worse. If you thought verses 24 and 25 were bad, 26 and 27 gets worse. For this reason, the fact that they did not honor God or give thanks to him uh, because they turned to impurity, to the lust of their hearts and everything, for that reason, God gave them up. There's a second instance of it. God gave them up in verse 24. He's giving them up again in verse 26. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged, Gentile women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So the downward spiral continues. God first gives them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies. Next, God gives them up to dishonorable passions. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, we see it here in verses 26 and 7. Paul continues, right? The dishonorable passions are women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise doing the same thing. I think it's pretty clear what Paul's referring to here, and this is He's talking about the sin of homosexuality. Now, it's gotten to the point in our current culture that we can't say homosexuality is a sin without being accused of hate speech, right? That's kind of what where things are going nowadays in certain countries that don't have freedom of speech. You kind of see this already. But Paul is clear here. Dishonorable passions are women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In other words, giving up sexual relations with men to engage in sexual relations with women. And men, likewise, giving up what is natural with women to be consumed with passion for one another. So homosexuality is a further consequence of God giving us over to the depths of our sin. And again, Paul uses this word natural three times. They exchange natural relations or it is contrary to nature, or they gave up natural relations. In other words, I hope, and I hope this goes without saying, homosexuality is not natural. It is not natural. It is a result of our fall into sin. God made humanity male and female, and he joined the two together in a one-flesh union, and he blessed that union. Marriage and homosexuality runs counter to this. But as Paul is elucidating here, as he is lining this out here in this section, homosexuality is a natural result for those who've exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So idolatry leads to the corruption of human society for when God is no longer worshiped, then it's anything goes. And then not to turn this into a commentary about our cult, uh, current cultural climate but you can certainly see this today, right? Again, Paul is eerily current in his description of humanity. Homosexuality has been socially acceptable for some time now, but with, in 2015 with the Obergefell uh, decision, the, the, the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage in all 50 states, we've seen an opening of the floodgates, so to speak. Now, what's the biggest rage you see in discussions now? It's transgenderism, right? The, the blurring of the distinction between male and female, that they say gender is fluid. You, you, know, you can't say that there's male and female. There's, there's a, like an infinite number of genders on the spectrum. Something that was considered a mental illness not too long ago and now is being promoted and celebrated. Now, is it too long now before that we now start to see other forms of deviant behavior become normalized? Point being is this, that this is a revelation of God's wrath on mankind. They refuse to acknowledge him. Then what's God going to do? He's going to let go. And he's going to let you run your natural sinful course. And you're just going to go down this downward spiral. And now we get to verses 28 through 32. Here we have a catalog of the evils common among human beings. But look at verse 28, where Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's the third time. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, the reason here uh, is because mankind did not see fit to acknowledge God. That's why he is giving them up this time. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. They did not see fit to hold God as true In their minds. And because they refuse to recognize that God, as the Creator, is to be blessed and worshiped forever, God again judges mankind, a revelation of His wrath. The descent through the downward spiral worsens from idolatry to homosexuality to a debased mind. That word debased means disqualified, worthless, corrupted. Now, as we get to the bottom of devolution, our minds literally become worthless and corrupt. That's what Paul is saying here. And then the result is they do what ought not to be done. Now, again, this is judgment. This is a God handing us over to our sin. He is saying, if you don't want to acknowledge me, then okay, you're going to suffer the consequences of your sin. God releases his restraining hand from sinful man and allows him to follow his natural or unnatural course. Now, you look at verses 29 through 31, you see a list of these sins that are cataloged. And it's just, it's quite the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are whisperers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now I'm not going to spend any I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through each one of these. Most of them are pretty self-explanatory what they mean, right? But it's a gruesome picture of sinful humanity with the restraints completely removed. When the restraints are completely removed, then all havoc breaks loose, right? It's, it's just like the dam is burst on, on God's restraining of our sin, and it just floods out in all of these things that you see here. I mean, again, it's quite the list. I mean, gossip, okay, murder. And then, of course, Jesus, he describes murder as not just the actual act of committing homicide, but it's the, the, the anger in your heart towards your fellow man that sort of is the root of that sin as well. How about disobedient to parents? <laughs> How many people have ever been disobedient to their parents in their lifetime? I mean, that, I mean, that, that could spell quite a, a section of my childhood was disobedient to my parents. Faithless, heartless, ruthless, insolent, haughty, boastful. And then now look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is truly the wicked part of this passage, right? The people Paul is describing know what they're doing is evil. They know this, again, why? Because they know God in their hearts. We'll get to this uh, probably in a couple weeks when we look at Romans 2. The law of God is written on our hearts. So they know right from wrong. God has instilled this with a conscience, even though in the fall our, our our conscience is, is, is seared, it's, it's fallen, it's corrupted. There's still that, that vestige of the image of God in us. It is not obliterated because of sin. There's still that vestige of the image of God in us. And we still have the law of God written on our hearts so that we know these things to be wrong. But even though they know they, they're wrong, they give approval of those they do. They give them hearty approval. Now, this says two things. One, it betrays the fact that they know God and his righteous decrees. But these people know this is wrong and they know this is ungodly. They know that what they're doing is worthy of punishment, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they've already rejected God. I mean, that's the easy way to get out of it, right? You know, if, you know, well, it's, you know it's sort of like, okay, well, God says this is wrong, but I don't, I don't believe you, so I don't care. You know, you, know, you just reject it. You know, it's, it's like you're, you know, when you're kids and you're playing They're like, well, I don't like what you're doing. I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. So it's kind of like what they're doing here. It's like, well, I don't want to listen to you, God, so I'm just going to pretend you don't exist, and I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to give approval to to people who do so. They're so debased and futile in their thinking that they encourage others to follow them down into the rabbit hole with them. As the old saying goes, misery loves company, right? Now, in the time I have remaining, which is a couple of minutes, I, I do want to say something regarding what I said earlier about homosexuality. Um, I believe that the Christian response to homosexuality needs to be balanced. I think it needs to be more balanced. I think there's a tendency in conservative, reformed or evangelical Christianity to see homosexuality as sort of the unpardonable sin as the worst thing that can happen. I'm not saying that's the case here, but certainly in American Christianity in general, Now, why this is so, I don't know why. I don't know why that there's this idea that sort of homosexuality is like the unforgivable sin. But I feel it has something to do with our current culture wars. And I think we are reacting maybe against what we see as a sort of a destroying or dismantling of our Judeo-Christian culture. But the point I want to make is this, is that homosexuality is a sin. The Bible is clear about that. Homosexuality is a sin and it is a grievous sin. God in the Old Testament calls it an abomination, but he calls other sins abominations too. That's not the only one. And the point is, it's not the worst sin that there is to do. I mean, I think in one sense you could say all sins are, in a sense, equal because they all deserve death, right? Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. So in one sense, all sins are, in a sense, equal because they're all deserving of death. Sin Carries a death penalty. But in another sense, some sins are more heinous than others. Now, homosexuality is one such sin because it perverts the natural order of how God intended human sexuality to be. It perverts what was created at creation between man and woman. But however, when I read Scripture, I see pride and I see self righteousness as far more heinous sins, as as things that are more grieving to God than just homosexuality. If you think about it, what does pride do? Pride sets one up in the place of God. When you you are proud and boastful, you are putting yourself in the position of God. In fact, pride was the first sin, right? When Satan rebelled, his his rebellion was fueled by his pride at wanting to be in God's position, so God cast him out. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. So, in other words, pride is like God repellent. All right? If you, could, if you can can, you know, pride, it would say on it, you know, it's like it would say God repellent. You know, you could spray it around it. God would not come within 10 feet of you if you're proud and boastful. And then self righteousness says, God, I don't need you to save me. I can do this on my own, which is really just a form of pride anyway right self righteousness just flows out of your pride saying i can save myself i don't need your help god and of course self righteousness also thinks it can put god in your debt right you do these things i mean that's, again going back to the prodigal son earlier what was the older son's sin it was self righteousness right he felt that his labor was owed grace was owed reward that's what he says to his father. He says, I have slaved for you these many years. Yet you never gave me a goat that I can celebrate with my friends. The older son's sin was self-righteousness. It thinks that you could put God in your debt and that you can demand something from God. If you peruse the Gospels, you will see that Jesus was gracious to the outcasts of society. He was gracious to the sinners. He was gracious to the prostitutes. He was gracious to the tax collectors. He ate with them. He drank with them. He didn't condone their sin, but he was gracious to them because they knew they were outcasts. They knew they were sinners. But he saved his harshest condemnation for who? The Pharisees, right? And who were the Pharisees? They were hypocritical, self-righteous, proud, and boastful. And when you look at this passage, yes, you see homosexuality given a prominent spot but you know what? When I look at verses 29 through 31, I see sins that I'm guilty of. When I look at that list, I see sins that I'm guilty of as well. Homosexuality is a sin, and we should never think that there isn't grace, though, for the person trapped in this sin. Just like there's grace for anyone trapped in any sin. And I'll close with this. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers—none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes to them and he says, "And such were some of you." He's talking to believers. He says, "And such were some of you. You people here—you were all these things here." Says, "Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified." And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is, that is the grace that is held forth to us in the gospel. And we'll stop here. So let us close with a word of prayer and get ready for worship.